Hey funny people, welcome to 4 Cent Shots. This is where I share a brief segment from one of the past episodes of the podcast for your enjoyment. So, enjoy! When I was 17 years old, I was sitting in my college algebra class in high school, bored. It was a day when we had a substitute teacher, a glorified babysitter who was just there to make sure we didn't destroy school property. So most everyone in the class had sectioned off into their regular cliques to chit-chat until the bell rang. I, the perpetual outsider, chose to amuse myself another way. I pulled out one of my spiral notebooks and started to write a short story. This was the first short story I'd ever attempted to write, although not my first attempt at fiction. All the way through high school, I'd been working on a longer project that, as I later discovered upon finishing it, constituted my first attempt at a novel. I can still recall the story fairly clearly. It was about an old man named Edward Wilkes who hated people and lived a highly unadventurous life. For some reason, the idea of writing a story about such a person struck me as funny, and I wanted to see if I could do it. The story, of course, was no good. In fact, when I submitted it to my first creative writing class, my fellow workshop attendees thoroughly eviscerated it. The central flaw of the story, when I reflect on it now, was that though the story had plenty happening within it, Wilkes was nothing more than a token on a game board. He had no motivation no stake in the outcome of the story. I hadn't learned the central rule of fiction writing. What a character wants should drive the engine of the plot. And when those two concepts work together in tandem, you get a story. My novel in progress was also no good, but I didn't know this then, and it didn't really matter to me. I simply enjoyed the process. Once I finished the story of Edward Wilkes, which I was able to do in the hour-and-a-half college algebra class that day, I had a small revelation. Writing was really the only thing I wanted to do with my life. I had found my métier. I also recognized in that moment, reflecting on my life up to that point, just how unlikely it had been that my vocation would indeed be writing. As an elementary school kid, I suffered from what was euphemistically called reading difficulties. Undiagnosed at the time, what I likely suffered from was a mild case, if such distinctions exist, of dyslexia, compounded by much more pronounced but nonetheless also undiagnosed anxiety. From kindergarten through to the third grade, I'd managed to dodge and weave my way through school. Like most people who suffer from dyslexia, I had developed very good auditory learning skills. If someone told me something aloud, I could retain it and understand it between 80 and 90% of the time. Not outstanding, but not terrible. My excellence in other areas besides reading and composition at the time, however, also helped. Believe it or not, I was exceptionally good at mathematics and science at that age, and those high marks buoyed me throughout school. Unfortunately, when I hit the third grade, that auditory learning skill became moot. 
My teacher that year, one Miss Burton, a stern, older African-American woman with thick glasses who bore a passing resemblance to the late great Rosa Parks, gave us a standing homework assignment she expected all of her students to complete, a weekly book report. Each week she expected us to read a book, a children's novel or a chapter book, and write a report about it. Well, there was no getting around this any other way. The problem was because I was so aware of my own lack of reading ability, I always procrastinated, a habit that I'm still sadly suffering from to this day. One weekend, in fact, me and my mother, she was always the one who got stuck doing this, had to stay up until 1 a.m. reading the whole of Roald Dahl's James and the Giant Peach together aloud one Sunday night. Those who know the book know that it's not very long, but to an eight-year-old, everything seems long. I went to bed and got up at seven later that morning to write my sad little book report, and the cycle would begin again. My parents, and my mother in particular, as she was the more present parent in raising my siblings and I, long knew of this problem. My mother had regularly gotten me after-school tutoring and reading. The thing was that rather than learning or improving, I'd memorize what they expected me to read time after time, like a musician who can't read music learns a tune by ear, so I could pass out of the tutoring. But then I'd plateau again. She'd also have many of the family friends try to get me to read as well, a prime example of 21st century it-takes-a-village thinking. One friend of hers was a PhD-holding college professor who she roped into doing this. One weekend my brother and I spent at her home, I can remember, involved an hour spent with her in her apartment living room, forcing me to read a picture book titled The Carrot Seed by Ruth Krauss and Crockett Johnson. How either of us managed to get through that without killing each other is a miracle. In the end, I think I just outlasted the hour like a boat in a hurricane. To this day, I can't look at the cover of that book without cringing, and I've never brought up the experience with her since. That this friend of my mom's later went on to adopt a daughter of her own is also a miracle. If I had endured that same experience with someone else's child, the idea of parenthood would have died following that experience. My mother had other ways, though. Each summer, she'd sign my brother, who had problems reading at first as well, and I up for the St. Louis Public Library's Summer Reading Club. The goal? Read 15 books by the end of the summer and win prizes. Summers during those years were not fun. By the end of the third grade, my elementary school finally decided that my lack of reading proficiency was unacceptable. So, at the end of the year, they issued an ultimatum to my mother. Either I had to go to summer school to jack up my reading ability, or I had no choice but to repeat the third grade. My mother somehow pulled the educational equivalent of an offer and compromise with the school. If she got a tutor from me over the summer to come to the house, then not only would I not have to go to summer school, but I'd be able to move on to the fourth grade. The school accepted the idea. She then went out and found a nun to help me. Because if you're Catholic and neither a teacher nor a college professor can help you, you get a nun to do it. Don't worry, though, it's not what you think. My mother didn't go out and find a nun 
who'd been a nun since the French first finished Notre Dame. She didn't go out and find a nun decked out in full nunnery regala like Maggie Smith or Whoopi Goldberg in Sister Act. She didn't go out and find a abbess or mother superior who was handy with a ruler or could wield a yardstick like a rapier. No. She went out and found a nice nun. Her name was Sister Rosemary. She was actually a teacher at my sister's Catholic middle school. Each week she'd come by the house touting a canvas bag full of books, many of them copies of the Serendipity Children's Book Series. And we read all the way through those, one by one. I can't explain what it was that finally clicked. Maybe it was the lack of pressure from having to read aloud. Maybe it was the lack of pressure from fearing I'd get a bad grade for failing. Maybe it was that Sister Rosemary had the gift of actually making reading fun as opposed to work. But something clicked into place that summer, and the change was readily apparent to me soon after. A few months into my fourth grade year, our teacher, Miss Hale, gave us an assignment. We had just finished reading Roald Dahl's The Witches. She'd go on to read many books of his and like that to us and we just completed a language arts unit on fairy tales. Our new assignment was to write an original fairy tale of our own. Not only did we have to write it, but we also had to illustrate it and format it into a homemade book. Like a lot of kids with dyslexia, I did have a big interest in drawing, but the assignment really got me excited. Here's my chance to finally use the one thing that I think makes me a little different, my imagination, I thought. As a kid, while I did have older siblings, they weren't all that interested in playing with me. My brother in particular had a much easier time making friends than I did. I couldn't help it. I was shy and got my feelings hurt very easily if other kids overtly excluded me from fun. This made me, of course, very unpopular, and it's a challenge I've been trying to overcome ever since, and thus far have failed to do so. As a result, I spent a lot of my time on my own playing make-believe, as the old Barney and Friends TV show used to say. In the end, I actually began to enjoy my solitude so much that I found other people intrusive. I withdrew into a world of my own creation. Only as I started going to school was I able to somewhat emerge from it, but with extreme caution, a practice I still pretty much adhere to to this day. The upside to this solitude is that it was a great training ground for a fiction writer early in life. If you can picture something that isn't really happening in front of you, imagine people, places, and things that don't exist into existence, and take things you've seen and that have happened to you or other people and morph them into something new, then you have the makings of a fiction writer. We started with an outline, the first and last time I ever used one, where we mapped out our plot, our characters, our setting, and our conflict. I didn't know any of these concepts at the time, nor did I truly intellectualize about them, but that's what they were. We all wrote our first drafts in longhand. This was before the days when elementary schools taught keyboarding instead of cursive. And Miss Hale edited and critiqued them. Having just finally gotten the hang of reading, my writing skills weren't all that great, especially in the spelling department. My first draft 
came away covered in red ink chicken scratch from top to bottom. Thus began my long-term dislike of criticism of my work. We all carefully crafted the illustrations to make sure they were as good as possible. In the end, I had my first story, Merlin and the Magic Monster. It's also clear from that story that I had a thing for alliteration, although I also didn't know what that was at the time. Even though I enjoyed the process, I didn't embrace my new passion, despite encouragement to do so. Whenever an adult asked me the question, what do you want to be when you grow up, a question which the adults in my life seemed to ask perennially, unlike most kids who could toss off an answer seemingly without issue, I was always determined to answer the question sincerely. So seriously did I take this question that thinking it over gave me much of my own anxiety. To this day, I blame that question for a lot of my childhood anxiety, which has followed me into adulthood. Writing didn't seem to be the thing to which I should devote my life. This belief had nothing to do with the economic hardship that often accompanied a writer's life. I wouldn't discover that until much later. My reticence was due to one thing. I'd been a dyslexic. Words had, until recently, been my enemy. I felt that because I lacked a natural control of language, I also suffered from several speech impediments, so this was true vocally as well as writerly. I could never be a good writer. So like many children, I bounced from one interest to another. For a brief period of time, I toyed with the idea of becoming a paleontologist. Largely, this was due to my love of the movie Jurassic Park, which could give any child the false impression of what that profession entails. I did, however, love dinosaurs and still to this day. They are the closest thing that the planet has ever seen to dragons of my beloved genre of fantasy. This then expanded into a love of all prehistoric animals, including pterosaurs, flying reptiles like the pterodactyl, and marine reptiles like the archelon and mosasaur. Then, under the influence of Steve Irwin, I considered becoming a herpetologist, a biologist who specializes in the study of reptiles and amphibians. It's a natural leap to go from wanting to be a paleontologist to a herpetologist because you're going from dealing with dead reptiles to living reptiles. My one hang-up on this front that kept me from pursuing this field was an irrational fear of snakes. I did what any person does to overcome a phobia, since most fear grows from a place of ignorance. I determined to educate myself out of that fear. I did so, and thus my irrational fear of snakes morphed into a completely rational fear of snakes. I suspect also that the movie Anaconda, seeing that film the year after it came out when my father brought it home from the library, didn't help my phobia either. Briefly, I also floated the idea of becoming a teacher, a perfectly practical job, if a low-paying one. I'd entered the world of music originally as a trumpet player and later acquired the upright bass in high school and thought that at least I could make a living as a music educator. However, four years in an arts high school surrounded by people who were far superior to you at what you wanted to do killed that dream in its cradle. With such competition, what was even the point of auditioning? In hindsight, the moment when I sealed my fate as a writer, although I didn't realize it then and whether or not I liked it, came before high school began. 
the summer between 8th grade and my freshman year of high school, I sat down at the family computer. We only had one in the house at the time, but that would soon change, with not a thought in my mind. I opened the 2003 version of Microsoft Word installed on the machine, and I wrote a sentence. In the year 5454, in the land of Telegro, a young Fanco sorcerer came to power. I didn't know what the hell that sentence meant, but I kept writing. A whole fantastical world suddenly began to emerge from the words. With each line, the world, at least in my mind, grew more vivid. With that one sentence, although I didn't even know it at the time, I'd begun my first attempt at a novel. For the next six years, off and on, due to an overscheduled high school life that did not agree with me at all, I worked on this book, which I'd preliminarily titled The Matthews Chronicle. I chose the title largely because its main characters were four siblings of the eponymous family. I finally finished a draft of it just before my 19th birthday, after I'd realized that writing was going to be my métier. And, as I'd mentioned before, it sucked. I transitioned to writing short stories after that in the hopes of improving my craft. All through college at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, where I made the fatal mistake of studying English largely out of a sense of being illiterate due to my dyslexia, I wrote story after story. Some of the comically bad ones even graced the pages of the campus humor magazine Brain Stew, to which I contributed from sophomore year onwards. I even managed to earn my first bit of money from writing by winning $200 in an essay contest. By the end of my collegial career, which I managed to get through without borrowing money, thus avoiding the great catch-22 of my generation's student debt, I had managed to make some headway in improving my fiction writing skills. In one story I'd written my last semester titled The Crippet, crippled trumpet player, a title I'm sure the hyper-politically correct would take umbrage at uh, were it ever to be published, gave me insight into my process. It was always best for me to start with a beginning scene and an ending scene in mind before writing and work from one to the other. Sadly, my fiction writing waned after graduation and for a long while after that. In 2018, I received the email that would change my life. English degrees are great for only one thing in the real world. Decorating your wall to prove to people that you wasted four years of your life getting a pretty piece of paper. They aren't, however, great for getting jobs in the real world. So I'd taken a job, my first in the field, working in retail. I hated the job, but I loved my coworkers. I'm not much of a talker. John Updike once said, you write because you don't talk so well, and that was definitely true for me. So, working in a grocery store department surrounded by women, all of whom loved to talk, was great for me. I got to listen to all their life stories and their perspectives. Working there really gave me insight into an experience, the women's experience, for lack of a better phrase, about which I knew nothing. While there, though, I still harbored this ambition to be a writer. I still had my métier. After being there for one year, seven months, and two weeks, I chose to leave. I'd amassed a considerable amount of savings over that time for one reason alone, to pay to attend a writer's workshop. 
Since leaving college, I had not found a replacement for the workshop environment, which I decided was necessary for me to grow as a writer. Without a feedback loop, I was simply spinning my wheels and gaining no traction. That January, I shotgunned applications to every one of which I had knowledge of. Concurrently, I began my next attempt at a novel. I did these two things simultaneously for one reason, an expectation of rejection. The year previous, 2017, the one writing workshop to which I'd applied to had rejected me. I'd largely done it on a whim to learn how the application process worked. There were also several instructors teaching at that workshop that year who I wanted the opportunity to meet and learn from, as they were all professional writers. With no past success to give me confidence, I expected they would, yet again, reject me. In that belief to salve my ego when the nose arrived in my inbox, I started writing the novel to retain my belief that I was indeed a real writer. They may reject me, I thought, but I have my novel and only real writers can write novels. I'm sure my thinking bore some resemblance to that. Every day I would sit down at my laptop and I would pound out 1,000 words a day consistently. I had nothing else to do except crank out this novel, so I was surely going to crank it out 1K at a time. I discovered, at least when it came to writing novels, that pace was really, really good for me. I also discovered that every time I met that goal, my mood was much lighter. And at first, I was spot on. Within 48 hours, and within days of my 25th birthday, I received two successive rejections from my top two workshops of choice. I braced myself for further disappointment by tossing the rejections aside and focusing on the novel. Then I received the most unexpected news. An email arrived from a Christopher McKitterick, the then and current director of the James Gunn Center for the Study of Science Fiction. The Gunn Center workshop, as I call it, had actually been my fourth choice in workshops, not because I thought it inferior to the others, but because of its length. The other three workshops to which I'd applied had a course period of six weeks, whereas the Gun Center's workshop only ran for two weeks. I thought, two weeks? That's it? What am I supposed to learn in two weeks? Still, I'd applied at the suggestion of Kids Johnson, who I'd managed to meet the fall before. She would know what the workshop was like because she was, and still is, associate director of the Gun Center and I had gotten to meet her in her office that fall because I'd written her a fan letter for her book of short stories at the mouth of the River of Bees. Still, I figured it was another rejection and I opened it expecting one. Instead, what I found was a very sweet, encouraging message. Chris began the email first by apologizing for not responding more quickly. I didn't think it was too late, but who am I to make such calls? He then went on to critique the story, a fantasy novelette titled Fire Drake, in a very thoughtful, sensitive, comprehensive manner. I put it that way because I'd never liked workshopping in person, at least from my college workshop experiences. I'd found my fellow critique partners too abrasive, overly nitpicky, and at least one too many cases dismissive of my work altogether. Chris's approach was clearly different, though. 
He believed in figuring out the platonic ideal of the story you were trying to write and then offering suggestions in the aim of helping you, the writer, bring the story closer toward that perceived ideal. I like this approach much better than the creative woodchipper method my university courses preferred. At the top of the second to last paragraph of the email, he wrote the following sentence. Regardless, if you're still interested, you're in. It was my first real acceptance as a writer, in my mind. I must admit also that I didn't immediately accept Chris's offer. At the time, I'd yet to hear back from the fourth program to which I applied. Shortly after Chris's acceptance came in, though, the fourth response came through. A polite rejection, so I immediately wrote Chris back after that and said I was indeed in. At the end of the workshop, I felt that I had learned more in two weeks than I had in all four years of my time as an undergraduate. Chris's teaching satisfied every desire I had in wanting to learn the craft of fiction writing. During the final get-together as a formal class, he asked us what our reactions had been to the class. I had only one thing to say. I wish I had done this three years ago, and I meant it. Now, I can say I have something of a writing career. It's been a fairly short one, yes, but the last three years between 25 and now 28 have been some of the best times of my life. There have already been some ups and downs, but one shouldn't expect anything else in a highly creative freelance career. It isn't the most stable means of making a living, especially at the beginning, but it is the most satisfying. As a kid, my parents only wanted one thing for my siblings and me. They didn't want us to follow a particular career path. They didn't want us to go into business to get rich and look after them in their dotage, although I'm sure they'd appreciate it. They didn't expect us to go into fields they'd wanted to go into so they could live vicariously through us. They only wanted us to be happy and secure. And the happiness always came first. Reflecting on it now, despite feeling as though I had come to it late and so started late, I can honestly say I am.